Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Today's episode is part two of our Ask Keith Anything series. Make sure to follow our social media and subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on all our great content. Now, on to today's episode. Okay. So I don't know of a better way to follow up questions about inflation than to start talking about gold. And here we have a series of questions, not only about gold, but that also uh, cover some of what we offer at Monetary Metals. So here we go, Keith. The spot price usually refers to the local London OTC price, comma, which is usually on an unallocated, unallocated basis. Does dealing on an unallocated basis inflate the supply of available gold and therefore depress the price? Second question, is this an issue for calculating the gold basis? Um, That comes from YouTube. Before you answer that, Keith, actually, it might be good for, for those who are not familiar to just give maybe an overview of the difference between allocated gold, unallocated gold, and some of the distinctions there. So allocated gold means there's a specific bit of gold um, that you have the legal title to. And, you know, it has a particular vault, particular location. And um, unallocated means you have gold on deposit at a bank. And I know there are big banking theories that think that when you deposit money in a bank, that means you own the money, but actually you have a credit. You have uh, a relationship with a bank where they owe you that. Now, unless the bank um, is behaving with reckless abandon, they don't take on a liability without backing it with an asset. So a bank is going to have some form of gold to back that, but there is not necessarily this correspondence to say this bar is held at this vault on this shelf in this rack with this serial number is yours. Um, but the advantage to it is that, um, so-called unallocated, you know, reduces a lot of friction. Um, you now can deal in, you know, down to the ounce or fractions of an ounce. You don't have to worry about the friction of what product is it and what is the premium on that product and all kinds of things that, um, that you would otherwise. So it makes... It, it it gives a greater utility to the gold, um, you know, versus the uh, the allocated. But it is simply not true that the way banks work is that you say I want to buy a thousand dollars worth of gold or a million dollars worth of gold or a billion dollars worth of gold, and they take your cash and do nothing, and then spend your cash and then, you know, promise to well we'll get you back somehow later. Just not how banks operate. Um, and if they did, I mean, they'd be, um, first of all, shut down, uh, you know, by the auditors and the regulators. And then secondly, they'd, they'd collapse anyway. So it is simply not true that the banks can play out or spool out, you know, like a, a dog in one of those extendomizer leashes, just playing out more and more gold, which is really fictitious, doesn't exist. Uh, or one of the other versions of this conspiracy theory is that they've sold each of the same ounces a hundred times over in the various ways of looking at this, basically a very simple and obvious fraud. Um, It's not how the world works. Um, There's something very dishonest about the entire monetary system, but the nature of the dishonesty isn't a simple and obvious fraud uh, uh, of that sort. Mm -hmm. But no, they're not creating um, endless supply to to spool out and then quote unquote, soak up the demand you know, in that sense, absolutely not. That was one part of the question. What was the other part? I, I think we, the follow-up was, does, does it come into play in calculating the basis at all, calculating the monetary metals gold basis? Um, I mean, yeah, so the basis, we get a price quote um, from, or a, a, a quote feed from, uh, it's called Refinitiv. It used to be Thomson Reuters. Um, and that is essentially all the big banks and, and other trading houses. Uh, that's their quotes. 
both uh, their bid. In other words, if you want to dump some gold right now, that's what you'd get. And their offer, if you want to buy some gold, that's what you would pay right now. And um, so that is so-called London, local London, so-called unallocated. Um, if you were to use something else, all it would do is you'd get a skew. So instead of London, if you wanted to use um, Singapore, what you'd see is a skew that um, the bid would be lower and the, and the offer would be higher because it's more expensive to deal in Singapore. You have less liquidity and it's a far greater probability that at the end of that trade, the metal is going to have to get on an airplane to move. And there's a phys there's a cost to moving physical atoms of gold around. I mean, it's not huge per ounce, but it's something. So you see wider spreads. So that would um, distort the basis and the co-basis. Um, and then if you were dealing in smaller, more retail products, you'd get an additional distortion, which will be cyclical, which would be the premium going up and down. So people say, hey, you know, how could you say this? This price is fake. It's totally fake. I love when people use the word fake. And usually it means I don't understand. And they say the price is fake. Um, and what they're, you know, what they're saying is I'm paying $38 per okay. one ounce sil silver eagle because um, there's a huge premium on the silver eagles. Um, yeah, last last I looked, they're over 40. The salt price is over $40. 40 bucks. So, so 38, I'm, I'm obsolete with that one. Um, 40 bucks. It's, uh, um, you know, so the, so the, the price is, is fake. Well, no, it's a real price. Uh, if you're dealing in thousand ounce silver bars in, right. in London, right. you're dealing in one ounce silver eagles in um, Kansas City, you know, yeah, you might be paying over 40 bucks. Um, so, so it's fair to say that, you know, in the monetary metals basis and co-basis calculations, that feed that you mentioned earlier, that's coming from really the hub of the gold market, which is based in London. Right. Okay. Okay. Next question. Uh, so mo moving on to some some questions. Oh, no, it's, it's worth adding. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Something with the basis. You're more interested in the trend than the absolute value. I mean, the absolute value does come into play when you see zero. It's interesting how sometimes it does seem to peg at zero for a bit. Um, and there's obviously a resistance there for it to go beyond. Um, but you're really looking for the trend or the direction. So, you know, as long as you had something that had a consistent spread to London, um, you know, you could use that and then you have a different absolute number, but you see the same trend. Right, right. Great. Okay, so questions about gold, but really as it relates to to gold and monetary metals. So here's one from Jack that came in uh, from the newsletter. My question is, how do you guys make money on the gold that uh, that people invest with you? How does monetary make models uh, make money and uh, is able to afford the interest that it pays to clients? That's a very good question. That. Um... If only everybody in the world asked that question whenever they're given a proposition, um, whether it's a conventional bank, whether it's so-called DeFi, whether it's some sort of cockamamie Ponzi scheme, um, where does money come from? It's an important question. Yes. And um, in our financial and monetary system, the problem is we, we use this term, the risk-free rate of return. Mm. So after, uh, President Roosevelt removed gold from the monetary system. The most conservative savers were forced into treasury bonds. And then, you know, pr partly because of regulation, partly because of the culture was trending that way, everybody began to define the treasury rate as risk free, uh, full faith and credit of the government, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, and, 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 you know, modern portfolio theory and all sorts of things are dependent on this notion of risk free. What did I say earlier about um, it's not a theory, it's a fantastical notion? Well, the idea of a return without risk is, is fantastical. I mean, you know, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons and we would talk about, you know, this dragon with a 150 foot wingspan and, you know, wizards that could cast these spells and all that. It was a great deal of fun, um, you know, for a bunch of high school kids. But, um, you know, reality. As, as dragons are to fantasy, so is the risk-free rate of return to finance. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> so, um, so there is no such thing as a return without some kind of risk. Right. Now you can quantify it, you can um, mitigate it, you can control it, you can insure it, you can adequately disclose it or fail to adequately disclose that as the case may be, but there is a risk somewhere. Anybody selling you the idea of a return without a risk 
is either a court economist who is you know selling the um, the government's propaganda in the case of the dollar, or in the case of other some other sort of scheme, they have some sort of nefarious end. It's not possible. So what we do in our program is lease the gold, which is this is a physical thing. So the problem with the word lease or the challenge with the word lease is that a lot of people use the word lease to mean different things. So the bullion banks are involved in a leasing business of sorts. There's something that the London Bullion Market Association used to quote as the gold lease rate. And this is kind of a financial arbitrage kind of a thing. What we're talking about is suppose you um, operate a, uh, a mint and every day you're buying X number of coin blanks um, and then you're stamping them with various things and then you're selling them uh, at the end of the day. But at all times, there's 100,000 ounces of silver kind of in your pipeline. So think of like an oil pipeline and you're pumping oil from um, whatever Canada to, to Houston if they allowed it. Um, no matter how fast or slow the oil is flowing, the amount of oil contained in that pipe is equal to the diameter of the pipe times pi times the length. And I'm just quoting here, you know, basically standard high school um, uh, geometry. You know, pi times diameter is the uh, cross-sectional surface area of the pipe, and then the length gives you the times the length as the volume. There's always oil in the pipe, and that's the amount of oil. Well, the same thing is true in any flows business, um, you know, such as a mint. So uh, by leasing the silver, we're saying, OK, we'll own that silver. Um, not we're not their supplier, we're not selling them silver, but it's a finance transaction. We purchase that silver and lease it back. And every day the actual atoms are being replaced because they're getting fresh coin blanks and they're selling finished. But there's always in this example, 100,000 ounces of silver. So that's what we call a lease. It is a physical metal as present. Uh, and we have the right on uh, you know two days notice to be able to show up, scrape all the metal, put it on a scale, and it would weigh greater than the least amount. That is um, you know the key feature of the lease is physically there. So you know what are the risks? Well, obviously, what if the owner is a um, a rat bastard and um, you know decides to grab all the metal and pack his bags and fly to a non-extradition country? Um, and you know steal the metal well that's obviously a risk and um, you know what happens if employees steal it or a fire happens or whatever so you have insurance to cover various risks you have um all kinds of other things background checks and personal guarantees and and whatever uh but you can never say there's zero risk there is a risk of loss um we haven't had any losses uh at volunteer metals we've been pretty careful about the deals we've done um, but that's not really answering the question, but um, so there is a risk. That's what we do. So the, how do we make money? The lessee who needs, this is a finance transaction for them. And it's also um, a hedging transaction. So put yourself in the, in the shoes of this business. Um, conventional way of financing this is you go to a bank. If a bank would give you the credit, say, okay, I need to borrow uh, uh, dollars, money as they would call it, um, to finance an inventory of 100,000 ounces of silver. Well, today's price, what would that be? Two and a half million dollars. Um, so you borrow two and a half million dollars, you buy two and a half million dollars worth of silver, you're in business, great. Suppose the price of silver were to drop, um, uh, what, five bucks. Nobody wants to think about that, but it certainly could happen. Now it's $20 silver instead of $25 silver, which is a 20% drop in the price of the metal. So your uh, $2.5 million of silver goes down to $2 million of silver. You owe $2.5 million. The liability doesn't go away, but the asset is now only $2 million. Um, when you go to your accountants at the end of the year and have a CPA review your statements, or especially if you get audited, um, you know they might say you're insolvent. Your assets are less than your liabilities. So um, to avoid that problem, uh, typically, they, uh, you know, business like that would go into the futures market and hedge. So they're selling the futures short. No, this is not about increasing the supply. This is about they have physical ounces. They're shorting silver for one purpose, which is to um, avoid the price risk. And so now, instead of borrowing two and a half million dollars, they need to borrow three million dollars and put five hundred thousand dollars in an account on the Chicago board. 
uh, so they can actually short futures. Then they have the problem, as we saw in nickel and also in wheat, uh, you have two different problems. One, if the price of the um, commodity is going up, then your broker is going to call and say, please send more cash. It's called a margin call, um, which is kind of bad. So now you have to go to your bank and borrow another $500,000 if they will give it to you and under what terms. And they may feel that they now have you by the uh, we won't say that word, but you know something painful. Right. Um, you know, then uh, there's a real loss. You know, not just the interest you have to pay on the additional credit, but there's a real loss there. What happened in wheat is kind of interesting. Wheat went into a very big backwardation, and so if you were short the May contract and wanted to roll it to December, um, I'm trying to remember what the percentage was now. Um, I have a friend who's like following all these charts, and I don't, I don't follow the agricultural commodities that closely. Uh, it was something like seven percent backwardation between those two months, which means so your short may um, to close the short position, you have to buy it, and backwardation means that contract is more expensive than the December contract. So you're buying may at let's say um, uh, fifteen dollars. And then selling short December, at, let's say $10. That's a real loss. You've now locked that in. That's not going to your bank to borrow more money that you can pay back when everything gets normal again. That's a permanent uh, you know, loss of capital. And um, <clears throat> I don't know a lot about the farming business, but I have to wonder if that is a greater amount, that $5 or whatever it was per bushel, <clears throat> if that's a greater amount than actual profit to be made right. in farming wheat. I don't know. Jeez. So. If you're hedging, you have these two problems. One is if the price goes up, yes, you long the physical inventory, so you're you're hedged, but you have to come out with more capital to feed the margin call in the short term, and you're going to pay more interest for it, and your bank may get more aggressive terms on you. And then if it goes into backwardation, then you have real costs, real losses in your hedging. Um, and the same thing happened, of course, in nickel. The guy that was short all the nickel as a producer, um, it was a hedge. It wasn't a, a bet. It wasn't a speculation. Um, and he would have been financially ruined, except for the exchange, um, you know, did what it did. And uh, I don't know whether he'll be financially ruined or not. Yeah. Okay. Well, I again, really great answer. I, I, there's one missing piece, I think, that this this question is asking, which is, um, so again, you've done a great overview of how we do leasing, um, you know, how we structure those transactions. But again, oh, how, I, I how do we make money? Yeah, how do we yeah, make so money? The, it's yeah. a finance transaction. The lessee is happy to pay because they're getting the finance they need and the hedge. And we take a fee out of that. And what we pay the investor is a bit less than what the lessee pays. And so we make a, a spread in the middle. Right. So, so, for example, if the lessee is paying five monetary metals. Yeah, we take two and then pay the investor three. Got it. Got it. So we're transparent. We work for a two percent fixed spread. Great. All right. A few more here. How easy is it to convert gold to dollars and dollars to gold with monetary metals? And what kind of friction or losses can investors expect to move in and well, out of dollars and gold? Uh, first, I'm going to be really cheeky and say conversion something that the medieval kings were paying the alchemists to figure out and, and never did. Um, okay. You can't take that piece of paper and turn it into gold somehow with a, a spell and eye of Newton and all that. Um, I think what we're talking about is exchange. And yes. the reason for being cheeky is that a lot of people think of converting things in the sense that the old thing goes away and the new thing you know comes there. But of course, the guy who used to have the gold now has the dollars and the guy who used to have the dollars has the gold. That's so a swap. Um, so with monetary metals, um, we can provide that service. There are there is a bid ask spread, um, not huge, but uh, you know there's there is a spread, there is a bit of loss. Um, you know we figure that uh, if someone's participating in a program where they're earning two or three percent interest uh, for some years, then that that spread kind of shrinks into insignificance. But yeah, if you were to say okay. You know, here's some here's some cash. I want to buy some gold, and then immediately turn around and say, you know what? The next day, forget about it. Um, I, I want to get my my cash back. 
Um, and let's assume the gold price didn't move one way or the other for that day that, you know, yes, there is a loss, not not a big one, but there is a loss. Yeah, and, and I, I can actually add some additional color there. These rates do move around with the market, but as of today, if you were to open a monetary metals account and were to wire funds to purchase gold, you'd be looking at all-in cost, uh, depending on the volume, it, you'd be looking at about um, 70 basis points all in, so less than a percent over spot price to buy gold. And that goes down depending on uh, if you increase the volume of the investment. And then those those rates um, tend to be around the same going in the other direction. So that's selling gold for dollars. Uh, it's about the same, the same rate. Silver is a little wider. Uh, the bid ask spread in silver is wider. That's the main reason for that. Um, you know, any any reader of monetary metals should know why that is. That's because silver is the smaller mar market. It's not as deep and as liquid as the gold market. Uh, so the rates the rates for buying silver are a little bit more expensive. Silver is less marketable. <laughs> That's right. Less marketable. Any wider bid ask spreads. Right. Um, okay, great. A few more here. And then we're going to get into the fun stuff. So, question from YouTube. How safe is your lending platform? And can Europeans use your service too? Europeans can use it. And um, it's perfectly safe and, and risk-free. Um, <laughs> for my comment, no, just kidding. Yeah. Um, there, there is a risk. Um, you know, we uh, pride ourselves on, you know, drilling all the way down to to the you know to the very bottom and figuring out what the risks are and understanding it, analyzing it, mitigating it, controlling it, ensuring it, and disclosing it to the investors. So, with each deal we do, we present a slide deck uh, to the investors so you can look at, okay, here's the business, here's what they're doing with the gold, here's how it operates, and here's a list of all the bad things. That we can think of what could happen to your gold followed by here's all the things we've done to make sure that hopefully the bad things don't happen um the thing is pretty safe um but uh as i said uh to the earlier question you can never say that you know such a thing as a risk-free return doesn't exist that's right that's right again one thing i might add to that uh the way the you know the way that we've set up the offering is that investors are in control. If for any reason investor doesn't want to move forward, they're not obligated to. You can you can pass on a lease and wait for the next opportunity. Um, all right, last question here. When it comes to opening a monetary metals account, does the metal have to be vaulted in Scottsdale or can you accept the metal in a different vault? And that's from Dale via email. You know, true story and kind of a funny one. Um, I was at a conference. Um, there was a, uh, a free market group um, that put on a conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, at the same time that the Fed had its Jackson Hole conference. Um, I think the idea was to hijack the the Twitter hashtag of Jackson Hole or something. It should actually worked, and they got some press. Uh, wow. From I feel like I, I feel like I, I I remember this, yeah. Um, actually, believe that it was the the real conference. <laughs> Anyways, um, I met up with a uh, uh, an old friend who happens to be a monetary metals client, and then several other people. And we're just sitting there having beers at the uh, hotel, um, you know, restaurant slash bar, and um, he. We were talking about do you carry gold with you? And he took out, he had four one ounce gold coins. As I recall, it was three Krugerrands and a, and a maple that he had with him. And he's passing it around and whatever. And so they ended up in my hands and I went to hand it back to him. And he just said to me, keep it. And there was a bunch of jaws around the table that all looked at him and looked at me and were just like, now I, I knew obviously he's a client, which I didn't feel I wanted to say if he wanted to tell everybody he's a client it's up to him to say that. Otherwise, it's not my you know, place to 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 break the confidence. So I just took the four coins and put it in my jacket pocket and sweated bullets the entire rest of the conference and on the way home. Um, and 
I, I don't want physical gold in my possession like that. That's that's a scary, you know, you take them through the airport, have to go on the belt. You know, if anything happened, I would have had to make good on it because he handed over. I could have refused it, I suppose. But um, in that moment, I made the decision to accept it and then paid the price in terms of, um, you know, lost, uh, you know, for each ounce, I think I lost a year of my life <laughs> just stress over that. So, um, you know, in Scottsdale, we're just in a, um, you know, an office building and, uh, you know, we don't even have a safe in the office. I mean, there's no, you know, we don't store any gold here. So we partner with, uh, in the U.S., we partner with Delaware Depository, which is the largest non-bank vaults of precious metals. We also have relationships with Brinks, um, with TDS, which is a subsidiary of AMARC. Um, ABC Bullion in uh, Sydney, Australia. We have a, a network of vault partners around the world. And um, the whole point of this network is so that um, people can use whichever is the most convenient vault, either to where they live or to where their gold may be, which is not necessarily where they live. So we've had any number of transactions in Singapore, for example, from Americans and Europeans who didn't want it at home, and they picked Singapore as the jurisdiction. So, um, yeah, we've got vaults all over the place. Do not send it to Scottsdale, please. Um, I've already lost enough life, life expectancy on, <laughs> on that one. Uh, don't want it here. Can't can't really accept it here. An insurance right. company would be pretty cranky if they found out that happened. Um, but, yeah, we uh, we have a process. You know, we'll give you, uh, you know, clear and concise instructions on how to get the gold to where it needs to go. Uh, and keep keep it in uh, uh, professional uh, depository custody. Great, excellent. All right, we've gotten through a lot. We're we're almost at the end. Everyone, take a deep breath here. Uh, it's it's about to get fun. So these last few questions. Wait, that wasn't fun. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, yes, different kind of fun. Different kind of fun. Um, we'll get to see a little different side of Keith, I think. Um, all right. Ready to go through these, Ben? Let's do it. All right. You're up first. All right. We're now in the random questions and the fun questions section. E, what would you replace in God we trust with on our currency? Well, um, first, I, I, I don't think there should be a government-issued currency. I think that's where a lot of okay. the problems come in. Um, you know, the whole idea of having to print the word trust, that we trust, is kind of the sign that, you know, what is it when someone says, I'll be honest with you? You know, it's Every good time. you know they're about to be dishonest, yeah. Yeah, or they've been dishonest the whole time, and now they're going to be honest. Right. right. Like the choice or something. Um, I think a proper honest currency, if it was printed up on paper, should simply say, redeemable, you know, who the issuer is. Um, and obviously you have serial numbers and security features and all that and a picture of whatever engraved image. And then it should say redeemable for this amount of gold. I mean, this whole idea of trust, you know, really shouldn't. If you, you know, what, what did what did uh, Margaret Thatcher say? Having power is like being a lady. If you have mm -hmm. to say it, you don't have it. Right. Um, something like that. If you have to start putting trust on there, you, you've already lost it. Right. Um, okay. I think uh, I think no surprises there. And uh, it, it reminds me. I'm pretty sure Google's, you know, uh, brand name and and logo used to have "Don't be evil" on it. And unfortunately, they had to take that away, which, which makes you wonder: Did they do it because they had to be evil, or uh, pro probably not a good way to start your uh, start your brand off? But I was okay. thinking. I was thinking uh, if I had a place a bet on the answer to that question. I thought you were just going to say replace God with gold and gold we trust, but I, I liked your answer better. Okay. That's, that seemed like the setup. This felt like a softball. The pitcher, <laughs> yeah. the pitcher has walked forward five or six <laughs> steps from the mound and is tossing the ball like this, and you're like... Um, right. But, right. Uh, yeah. M moving on. Um, what's your favorite steak cut and why? Um, either a ribeye or a tomahawk. Okay. And um, 
Difference between a ribeye and a tomahawk. The is tomahawk, it just the bone? Is it tomahawk yeah, the, the bone? bone and uh, tomahawk tends to be a thicker cut. Okay. So you get sort of a better ratio of juicy meat to, um, you know, burnt crust, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, and Keith orders the, his steak medium, medium rare. Medium rare, but probably on the rare side of medium rare. I definitely want to see some. I always say to them, I want to see some red in that thing. Um, I think the the ribeye just has the the right um, balance of of marbling and therefore you know flavor. I don't eat a steak very often. It's like what is it? The most interesting guy in the world. I don't eat steak very often, but when I do, it's a ribeye. <laughs> I like it. All right, Keith. You've published articles. You've been in a ton of videos, interviews. Do you have any plans to ever write a book? I do. Um, I think there are several that I need to write. Um, I gave a talk by this name, uh, Dixon, you were there uh, in New York at the Harvard Club called The Dollar Cancer and the Gold Cure. And I want to, in that book, integrate all of my ideas about how the dollar is failing and how gold wouldn't fail and then what the transition path is. Beyond that, I think that I've developed probably half, maybe less, of what I think is a proper um, introduction to a field that I think should be called monetary science. So beyond that, I'd like to write a more scholarly book called Introduction to Monetary Science. And then, you know, the approach that I've taken, having studied under Fakate, who really held back to Menger, and Menger developed the bid and the offer as a concept, the Austrian school. You know, it kind of acknowledges it, but kind of goes in a different direction. Um, so I'd like to write a book on the arbitrage uh, um, school of economics almost. Um, that's kind of an ambitious thing that, you, you know, be a lot more work. I think the other two books I kind of largely have in my head at this point. Um, but, you know, to, 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 to try to write about kind of a different approach to economics, um, that'd be a bigger a bigger project so maybe maybe the first two are while while monetary metals are growing and then the last one is in retirement whatever that may be if, if there is a retirement for me awesome awesome all right speaking of monetary science this question is aside from yourself are there any other monetary scientists that you would recommend any other gold standard advocates that you would recommend? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I have some ideas in common with um, Brent Johnson, Jeff Snyder, you know, Brent Johnson for the milkshake theory. Jeff Snyder talks a lot about the euro dollar. And, and what's interesting about that is, you know, as you drill down, and, and I really appreciate sort of the study of the mechanics and going deeper into the depths. Most people just hold all these ideas as a floating abstraction, and he goes in and looks at, you know, what the banks, you know, offshore, not regulated by the U.S. regulators, what they can do, and how that differs from, you know, the onshore banks, and that's the so-called euro dollar. Um, and uh, I definitely would have to mention Dan Oliver. Um, if there was a school of monetary economics that openly and explicitly rejected the quantity theory of money and openly touted or promoted the quality theory of money. Um, so Dan, if you're listening to this, I haven't necessarily obtained your consent for saying this, but I think, mm -hmm. I hope you would agree with this, that he would be a, a fellow traveler in the quality theory of money uh, uh, camp rather than almost everybody in the world. Even the people who don't explicitly tout the quantity theory almost everybody is a quantity thinker mm. um and uh you know dan is is one of the guys who who knows what a real bill is um he uh he's got a lot of interesting uh things to say uh, so i'd call him a, a fellow traveler you know as well that's great P piggybacking on that um, oh and then i should also add i'm yeah. sorry um when i wrote my dissertation uh, for the new Austrian school, um, there were two examiners. So the uh, professor who was the um, um, 
you know, my dissertation advisor was Professor Fekete, but there was another examiner, and that's Professor Juan Ramon Raglio of um, University uh, Juan Carlos in Madrid. And uh, I think he shares a lot of the, mm. uh, you know, s similar ideas. I know he had a debate with Larry White about real bills. Um, I really wish I could have added something to it because I would have said it in a bit of a different way and perhaps have been a little more, more persuasive to Larry White. Uh, I would also have to add Larry White to the list um, as, uh, as uh, I consider him to be almost the, the godfather of the modern free banking movement. Um, and, uh, you know, contributed a lot to that, uh, you know, to, to things we take for granted that people kind of understand about free banking. Mm. I think he gets a lot of the, a lot of the credit for reviving, you know, an idea that was considered to be old and dead. That's great. So this, this next question is kind of a piggyback on that. Um, and, and you've actually already provided some of the answers, but, um, asking about recommended reading. So you mentioned Larry White, uh, Juan Ramon Rayo, Dan Oliver, any other any other authors that you would recommend? You know, I would recommend Fekete, especially his older work. The problem is he writes a lot in like mythological allegory. <laughs> He'll talk about Chimera and Charbdis and Gordian Knot and the all Gordian these things. Gordian Knot, yeah. Um, and you know biblical things, but also ancient Greek, Roman, Egyptian. I mean, it's he's not easy to read, and it's not easy to get the sense of like what this really means or why he wrote it. Uh, but I definitely recommend that. And then of course, you know the classic, the good guys, Menger, absolutely, Principles of Economics, Geld, um, you know Mises. I mean, how could you not recommend Mises? Although with qualification that I think. His, his understanding of money is a bit different, and I have some disagreements there. Um, Hazlitt, of course, Bastiat, of course, uh, Jean-Baptiste uh, Say, uh, of course, Say's law, you know, should practically be an axiom properly understood. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there's another good one. It's I, I always get the name wrong. But specifically on the question of money, it's Melchior. The last name starts with a P. Do you know I'm you remember that yeah. one? Um it, there's not a lot by him, but he has an essay or two on money that's good. I can dig it up. So a lot of interesting things that are out there. And it's like, you know, okay, how deep down the rabbit hole do you want to go? <laughs> I mean, do you want to become a scholar? Um you know what's what's your ambition with it right i think but for a general purpose podcast i probably put yeah. more things on the table than um yeah no that's great that that that's a great list if anyone gets through uh, all those authors you, you'll be in a good spot so that's all right. right ben you're up next all right keith I, i'm i'm dying to hear this one you've just been named the chairman of the federal reserve board of governors congratulations what is the first thing you're going to do um so for everybody who's read the novel atlas shrugged by ayn rand um they try to offer john galt the position of economic dictator he says i refuse they said we're going to make you do it he says okay and, and what's your first order and he says my first order shut it all down. Um, if 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 there were to be a government position that would be more appropriate for me to take, it would be Secretary of the Treasury. So from that, within that role, assuming I had a mandate um, to do it, one could, you know, and it would be a process. I mean, you can't just declare it. You, know, you can't just say end the Fed. Um, that's kind of a bit more than a bit naive. Um, you know, there would need to be a process of, of how you go about doing that without grave disruption. Uh, and, and I think I could do that from the position of Secretary of Treasury, again, assuming there was a mandate. Um, otherwise, it would just be highly political. It would all be bogged down. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't accomplish anything. and I wouldn't take the job you know, anyways. I guess I guess related question, which might be difficult, but who has been your favorite Federal Reserve Board member, and is this kind of myth of Paul Volcker uh, 
Is is he overrated? Um, it's kind of like asking me, what's your favorite illness? Um, there was the time that I was sick to my stomach. I couldn't hold food down for three days. Um, there was that hangnail that plagued, you know, I mean, how do you, you know, no, um, I don't regard them as, as, as heroes, um, at best and Volker surely fits this position to a T or this comment to a T. They get lucky and happen to be in the right place at the right moment when something happens that actually isn't good at all, but is widely acclaimed to be good because everybody loves a boom, a false boom. And he happens to be his guy. He happens to be the wizard of Oz, you know, the the little powerless punk behind the curtain um, at the moment when, uh, you know, the rising interest rate. So after World War II, the interest rate begins rising, causing all sorts of calamity, including rising prices and misery index and all the things in the 1970s. Um, and then it turns around in 1981, and he happened to be his—he happened to be the guy with his hands on the megaphone at that moment. And then everyone says he fixed inflation, which it did not, and you know created better economic times, you know, in the sense that a boom—a false boom—is better economic times than the misery of a rising interest rate environment. And everybody acclaims him and, of course, Reagan for that. And, and uh, you know, I find myself in the position of, number one, he really shouldn't get credit. And number two, it's not really something to credit anyway, because it isn't actually a good thing. But how do you argue with people and say, yeah, that decade that seemed good wasn't? Well, it's a false boom. Everybody loves the boom times. All right. Good answer. All right. Not to say that the questions we've had up to this point have been bad, but I do feel in a way that we've saved the the best for last year. Um, so, all right, it's time to get into some Lord of the Rings questions. And the first one is a great one. Such a good question. Okay, here we go. Who and what is Tom Bombadil? Oh, wow. You're going to test my Tolkien scholarship. It's my understanding Tom Bombadil was um, a Maya. So if you, do you, do you I guess for the, for the benefit of the audience. So in the beginning, there was Eru Iluvatar, the one um, who then started to create this music. And, uh, you know, out, out of that comes the the greater gods. The ones that uh, uh, you know ruled to, to rule Middle Earth and and rule in uh, uh, basically heaven, which is Valinor, um, and then there's uh, a m much larger number of lesser gods, which are the Maya. So they're immortal, um, and uh, you see several. So the wizards, Gandalf and Saruman, Saruman, I'm sorry, Sauron is also a, a Maya. The Balrogs are Maya, um, and I believe Tom Bombadil is a Maya. Well, we'll have to fact check that. I'm I am not I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> fact checkers say this is, this is gonna get good. <laughs> I you know he's 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 a man of mystery in Don't the. Don't cancel me, bro. <laughs> he's a man of mystery. They he's referred to I think as the oldest being of Middle Earth, and I'm pretty sure that's in the books. Um, I don't know if he's a Maya though. I I I'm. I have to I'll have to go back and check that. But it's it was a great answer. You got into the Silmarillion, you got into, you know, the the making of Earth. Um I, I award you five stars. It was excellent. Okay, who is who is your favorite Lord of the Rings character and why? Hmm. In a certain sense, I have to say Feanor. Oh wow! Okay, creator, all right. Creator yeah. of the Silmarils, because he was so badass, <laughs> but he was also so arrogant and such such an idiot, and did so many, you know, did some things that got very destructive. Um, I feel like I feel like we've 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 started in the deep end of the pool, and we need maybe to work our way to, more towards the shallow end. So maybe from the trilogy, your favorite, uh, like your 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 Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King. Who's your favorite? Uh, character in the trilogy. I kind of I kind of have to go with Frodo 
in the sense that you know he has this you know he has this burden which leads to this quest and he feels like he's the one who has to do it and i i, I see you know significant parallels to what i'm trying to do with monetary metals and you know, especially in the early days, it can be kind of lonely and certainly not glamorous. Um, and you can't really contemplate just, OK, I'll just drop the ring over here on the side of the road. Hope it works out. Um, so uh, so in that sense, I, I, I relate to Frodo. All right, Keith, uh, works of fantasy or literature that rival Lord of the Rings, in your opinion, are there any? I would have to say the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan and the Sword of Truth series by Terry Goodkind kind of have that epic scope, you know, to them in, in different ways. So I'm familiar with the Sword of Truth, but Wheel of Time, can you can you give us a quick synopsis rundown or is that something we should Google? Um, I don't think I could possibly <laughs> anybody could possibly give a quick to so Robert Jordan was um shall we say verbose think okay. it ended up being so he died before the end but all of his notes were there and so they hired another author to kind of work with his wife and his secretary to finish it. I think it ended with 13 or 15 bucks oh, Amazon yeah. has now just made season one of a, of a wheel of time yeah. you know I thought I had seen yeah on Amazon uh, so if you have an Amazon Prime membership, I think it's free. Um, it's it's an epic and grand world and all kinds of stuff going on. I think Robert Jordan must have created thousands of characters that have names and stories and arcs and all kinds of things. Mm. The very rich tapestry of a world. Um, no, I, there's no way I could possibly. <laughs> there, there was one thing I remember on Facebook years ago, this game of like, take your favorite movie, your favorite novel, and tell it badly in a paragraph. It was like, you know, Lord of the Rings, um, you know, a guy inherits, uh, you know, an antique piece of jewelry and um, decides to uh, drop it into a volcano <laughs> or something like that. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll spare the wheel of time. Yeah. Although that was good. I mean, that was helpful. I, I have, I actually do have a better sense of what it's like. Okay. Last one on, on uh, Lord of the Rings here. There are quite a few well-known founders, most notably perhaps Peter Thiel, uh, but also Jeff Bezos that happen to be huge Lord of the Rings fans. In Peter's case, you can see it all over the names of his companies, right? So you've got um, Palantir, Valar Ventures. There's apparently even a rumor that um, he refers to Founders Fund as his precious. That would be amazing if that's true. <laughs> um, I learned from from watching the movies, but I, I, they had a real Tolkien scholar advising them on pronunciation that it was pronounced Palantir. Oh. I always said it Palantir. In my previous company, we had a server product that we called Palantir. Okay. Years before Peter Thiel did his thing. Yeah. But in the movies, they say it as Palantir. Okay, that's 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 news to me. Um, so yeah, the question is why? Like, why do you think? Do, do you have an opinion, or why do you think that 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 story is so popular amidst that demographic? Is it is it correlation, or do you think there's some causation there that these you know, incredible people that have literally changed the changed the world that we live in happen to be such huge Tolkienites. Well, I think that the trend answer is Tolkien is very popular. So there's an awful lot of people in every walk of life that are fans of Tolkien. True. Um, you know, back in the 1960s, people were spray painting Frodo lives in the New York subway system and, you know, all this stuff. People were writing to Tolkien saying that they had their weddings and, you know, Elven themed, you know, things or whatever, which he hated. Um, but I think I think two things. One is the the books. If you if you read them as serious literature, and and I mean, there's a superficial sort of fantastical level, but there's a, they're serious literature. They're, they they do aspire to be high art. They're not some dime novel kind of kind of trash. Um, touch on real human themes. Obviously, death, 
hope, despair. I mean, like really big kind of things. Right. Um, and, you know, we live in this world, we call it modern, but modern in literature and art is kind of the disintegration of everything that made literature and art great. So, you know, we live in a world that it's like nihilism and, you know, grungy, um, you know, it's, it's hardly art anymore. It's almost more like journalism. It's like just a recitation of the facts with no particular theme or worse yet, a movie where there's no one particularly heroic. Everybody's a bit dirty. You know, you think so-and-so is the, you know, like um, uh, the Game of Thrones, you know, became really popular and it's like, who would you really cheer for in that? It's just a giant soggy mess. Uh, and Tolkien stands out as something that is modern in the sense of the 20th century, but it, um, you know, aspires to something heroic. It, it aspires to, to show man as he could and should be, mm. you know, striving for something obviously amongst very difficult circumstances, which are fantastical in their origin. I mean, there's a dark Lord with a magic ring and you know dragons and stuff but um you know the, the 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 principles and the virtues and the themes and all that are very universal um and so i think there's almost nothing else really in the past 100 120 years that um would rival it in that sense um so yeah i think a lot of people gravitate to it um and uh, and, and and rightfully so Real, real evil and and real good, but told through uh, a fantastical landscape and and architecture and narrative. Right. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to end. Um, let not your hearts be troubled, dear monetary metals companions, because just like Gandalf, we will return. For, for part two uh, of, of, of Ask Keith Anything. Want to thank, um, thank Keith, thank you, Keith, for the time that you've given us. Thank you, Ben, for letting me co-host with you. Um, we have a lot that we'll be putting in the show, uh, show notes for this episode, so be sure to check that out. This video is going to go on our YouTube channel. Uh, it's also going to be in our podcast format, so if you're listening on Spotify or SoundCloud or wherever you listen, make sure to check out the video to see Keith's uh, reactions to the questions. They're good. Um, yeah, thank you so much. And we will yeah, see so you again. Or go Dixon, ahead. You, you know, Dixon wasn't kidding. Uh, this was my first glimpse <laughs> of the question. So yeah. you're seeing it, uh, you're seeing it live on my face and in my voice. Uh, uncut, unfiltered, uh, just as it happened. So it was a lot of fun. Thank you all, everyone. And we will see you again on the next episode of the Gold Exchange Podcast. Thanks for checking out this Ask Keith Anything episode of the Gold Exchange Podcast. Make sure to follow all our social media and subscribe to the channel to watch part three. See you next time.